We've been looking at the Gospel of John. And does anyone remember how the Gospel of John starts? Do you remember that in the beginning thing that we talked about several weeks ago? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I told you, in other words, if we had looked at the, another way of translating that was, before the beginning ever began, the Word was already there. And the Word was face to face with God, and the Word was God. And it goes on, it continues on from there in John chapter 1, saying basically the Word became flesh, and his name was Jesus, and he came to his own people. His own people uh, didn't really accept him that much, but to whoever believed in him, he gave them the power, the privilege, the ability to become children of God. Now, John's continuing his story, and he's explaining to people, okay, this Jesus guy, who is he, and what is he all about? And last week we had kind of a neat story about a, a wedding that was kind of going off the rails, but Jesus saved the day. This week we're going to follow up that story, and we're going to talk about desperate faith. Last week was uh, a situation where no one was in danger of dying, unless it was dying of embarrassment. But this week we're going to talk about a very serious situation. Uh, that was literally a life and death story. So I'm going to read it to you. And for those of you who are, are wondering, our clock and my watch are synchronized exactly. So in case you came here thinking, wow, I'm going to get an extra hour of sermon today, I'm sorry. But if you want, you can listen to the sermon online another three times and money's worth, okay? After two days, after the two days, he left for Galilee. Let me explain the context of this. Jesus has just come from a place called Samaria, which was kind of the other side of the tracks, which is the sketchy part of Jesus' area where he grew up. And it was pretty much hostile territory because Samaritans and Jews had a, a centuries-long uh, rivalry and not just active dislike, a hatred of each other. But yet Jesus had been in Samaria wandering around, talking to people and explaining who he was, and a whole bunch of people believed in him. So it was quite successful. And he hadn't been doing any miraculous signs or anything like that or He'd just been talking to them in this one conversation with kind of a uh, woman with a past, let's say, at a well in a little village. Uh, we're going to talk about that in a few weeks, actually, that story. Uh, it was so dramatically changed her life, she went and brought all of her neighbors and invited them to, to hear about Jesus, and many of them believed. So after a couple of days in Siberia, all these people believing in just what he said, nothing more. He left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Galilee was the area where he grew up. There is a comment sometimes made, I don't know if you remember, you can't go home again. Are you familiar with that statement? 
which means if you grow up, the context is if you grow up in an area, everyone's going to remember, oh, I just remember when you're wee little. Uh, you know, they want to pinch your cheeks and mind how you've grown, and they still do that when you're not quite in your 50s, but pretty close. And uh, fortunately, my, my mom's older relatives are moving on, and so they don't do that as much to me anymore. But there's something about going back to where you've grown up, where people remember you, and you may not be as respected as you feel you should be, because people kind of take you for granted. They know all your stories, they know all your faux pas, and they bring up stuff from the past just to kind of to bring you down to their level a bit. Something similar was going on in Galilee. As you remember, as Jesus was, was preaching early as, in his ministry, people would say, ah, isn't this Joseph's boy? Isn't he a carpenter? You know, like, what? who is this guy? Who does he think he is? And his very first sermon in Nazareth, where he grew up, the people wanted to kill him. I'm so grateful you don't have that reaction to when I preach. I really appreciate that. But there was a lynch mob formed, ready to kill him. That's the kind of response he got in his hometown. So, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. But when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Who? Jesus is back. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also beaten him. Now, what had happened to back in John chapter 2, um, Jesus had gone in and he'd seen the temple turned into uh, even worse than a flea market. It was the, this, this exploitive system of ripping people off. What, what would have to happen at Passover um, depending on the wealth of your, your family, you either offer uh, a lamb or perhaps a pair of doves as kind of a blood offering, a sin offering for your sins. And that was kind of the annual tradition. Well, people got in there and they were so crooked and they ripped people off. People are always finding ways of making money off of needs. And it was religious exploitation is what it was. And to make a long story short, this disgusted Jesus. And he said, you've got no right. My house, God said, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And they had taken the part of the, the, part of the temple that was reserved for Gentiles to come and pray. And they had it full of farm animals and money exchange rates and all kinds of rip-off con schemes. And he just flipped. He lost it. He's turning over tables and grabbing whips and driving people and animals out of there. It was quite a scene. And then after that, he talked about, uh, basically, he predicted that his, he would be killed and his body would be raised. He would come back from the dead in three days, although they didn't quite understand the context of what he was saying. And it says in John chapter 2 that he performed many other signs and miracles to attest to back up that he was God. He wasn't just raving around like some lunatic coming in and busting up a worship service. He could back that up by the signs and wonders that he was performing. So that's why the Galileans said, hey, that Jesus is back in town. There's nothing good at the cinema. Why don't we go check him out? I wonder what he's going to do next. Wouldn't that be cool? Let's go see what's going on. So they welcomed him, even though there was this kind of lack, innate lack of respect. So 
So, what happens next? Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. Remember that story we did last week? Pretty cool. I'm sure, I wonder if there was any wine left. Maybe not, but I'm sure there were, hopefully the hangovers were all gone, but there were a lot of good memories from that event. Hey, Jesus is back in town. Good times, they say. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. So the last time Jesus had been in Cana was a really happy event, very festive, very celebratory. And he kind of subtly, slyly does this miracle. I don't know if everybody really clues in, but it's, it's enough for his disciples to believe this guy is who he says he is. But now he's back in the same place again, and it's not a happy occasion. He's face to face with this royal official, someone who likely worked in the court of King Herod Antipas, who is, to put it mildly, not a nice person. All the Herods that you meet in the New Testament, um, I'm going to be very careful in my choice of words, they just were not good honorable rulers. And to survive in that kind of atmosphere, I think you'd have to be pretty quick-footed and pretty politically adroit. And anyway, this guy who is kind of the hoi polloi, he would be one of the 1%, all of a sudden comes to Jesus. Now, you've got to understand the context. A little, little geography lesson here. Capernaum is 20 miles or about 30 kilometers from Canaan. So this man has traveled already, likely that, that, that day, that morning, got up really early and traveled 20 miles or 30 kilometers. How long would it take for you to travel 30 kilometers? On foot? Or maybe he was wealthy enough to you know, afford some animal to ride on. He would have really been hustling to get to Canaan. Why? Why the desperation? Because his son was sick. How many of you have ever dealt with a sick child? You know that sense of urgency, right? You move heaven and earth. You just get out of my way. And you get there and you focus on making sure that that child is okay. Even if it's just ranging from, you know, something relatively mild, like a ear infection, to something more, you know, life-threatening. You just focus on nothing else. That's what this man was so concerned about. It's fascinating that even though normally he may not have associated with the life of Jesus, he was so desperate and he had heard who Jesus was, some of the things that he was, what he was up to. He had not fully believed in Jesus' identity. He just knew he was someone who could help. And he was so desperate, he hustles over from Capernaum to Cana. And he comes and begs him to come and heal his son. Imagine just the tension. All these people are clamoring around Jesus, wondering, well, what's he going to do next? All this anticipation. This man, I think, likely elbows his way through the crowd, or maybe they saw who it was, and they kind of shrank back, and he went to Jesus, and he begged him. In the Greek, it's this sense of continual, repeated asking. See, he was insistent. He was laying it all out there. He wanted his son healed because he didn't have anybody else 
to go to. He was desperate. Jesus is something, at the very least, abrupt and almost offensive when he encounters this man. Here's a man begging Jesus to save his son. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. And he's thinking in this context, Jesus is addressing all these skeptical Galileans who just want something out of Jesus. There are a lot of people in life who just want something out of Jesus. You know what I'm saying? They want to use him for their events. They look at Jesus as, uh, we've got a number of fire alarms here in that building. Please don't pull any. I'm looking at one right there in the back of the way. They think of Jesus as some kind of celestial fire alarm. I don't have any time for him, but when I really need him, ring, ring, help me. Or some kind of cosmic vending machine. You know, if I do the right things, push the right buttons, I get what I want. It's a consumeristic relationship with Jesus. And I think that's what he was struggling with a little bit. The Galileans just wanted to see some kind of celestial dog and pony show. And he says this, it seems almost rude to a man who's so desperately begging for the life of his son. But there's a purpose to it, too. He wants to test this man. Did you just want something out of me? Or do you want me? Right? There's a big difference. And you know what it's like when you have someone in your life who wants something out of you. Or do they just want you? I don't care how many friends you got on Facebook, a real friend just wants you as a friend. They don't want something out of you. And that's the sense that Jesus is saying. He said, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. And in the Greek, it's, it's almost a sense of my little boy. So it's got this urgent, I don't know how old this kid was, but it was like, please, my little boy is dying. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. Wow. Imagine what's going on here. Jesus is kind of testing this guy, saying, are you just in it? Why are you asking me? What do you, what do you really want here? What's it really at stake here? And the man presses in and it's not a, this is not about earning, you know, Jesus' favor, but it's about getting real. It's, it's about Jesus wants us to get real with ourselves and get real with him. Many of us come to Jesus because we want something out of him, but we really don't want him. I hope you understand what I'm trying to get across here. Many of us try to use him instead of having a relationship with him. Himself. And Jesus is testing this man, and the man just presses in and says, Look, Jesus, look, I just need you right now. I just need you to help God do something. I was talking to somebody this week about we're comparing favorite prayers, and one of our we agree that one of our favorite prayers is, Lord, help. Okay? Desperate faith. God honors desperate faith. Because it's not about pretension, it's not about praying the right way, or looking the right way, or looking good on a Sunday morning. It's desperation. Come on. And Jesus saw this man's desperate faith, and he said, all right, go. 
your son will live. This is amazing. This next sentence stuns me. I've been thinking about it all week. The man took Jesus at his word. He didn't drag him 20 miles or 30 kilometers back to Capernaum. He took Jesus at his word. What is with that? What was this man thinking? Would you be able to do that? He took Jesus at his word. And he departed. And while he's still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, well, yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And then the father realized this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. The man took Jesus at his word. Now there's a little subtlety in the story, and it kind of an important detail that's a little bit hidden. I'd like us to, to dig out, because this is worth thinking about, okay? All right, let's, let's just look at the timing of this event. The man takes Jesus at his word, which I still marvel at, and he left. So he's gone from Capernaum to Cana, about 30 kilometers, and it's about 1 o'clock in the afternoon when he has his con conversation with Jesus. Okay? And he goes back, and then it says, whoops, sorry. The next day, while he was still on the way, his servants met him, and then he said, oh, he got healed yesterday. So what happened is that the man spent the night somewhere. He wasn't home. He travels to Cana, says, Jesus, please heal my boy. He rushes there. So I don't know how fast you can call, cover 30 kilometers with a, a motorized vehicle, but he did it. I haven't done all the math yet, but, you know, I'm sure he didn't run the marathon, although he was running as much as he could. He was rushing there. He rushed to Cana. Jesus says at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, okay, boom, it's good. And then the man starts back. But he's somewhere he spends the night and he doesn't get home that day. So here's what I extrapolate out of this. And, and Charles Spurgeon pointed this out in the message I was reading this week. The man ran to Jesus, but he walked home. It's appropriate for us to run to Jesus, right? We run to Jesus, we take him at his word, he says, all right, and then we walk home. Not that, you know, this means everything is all better and we will, you know, skip home through fields of wildflowers, that kind of thing, but he went home in peace. He didn't rush home, he wasn't urgent. So he ran to Jesus, right? And then he walked home. Run to Jesus, Take him at his word. And then away you go. Now, an amazing thing happened this morning that wasn't planned by Philip or myself. But during the offering, that beautiful piano piece that, planned, uh, that Philip was playing, it's a song that's in our hymn book, song, uh, hymn number 350. It's called, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. And I'm going to read the first Verse. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word. Oh, look, there it is. Just to take him at his word. Just to rest upon his promise. 
just to know, thus saith the Lord. And that's what this story is all about. Taking Jesus at his word. That's what desperate faith does. Totally appropriate to run to Jesus. Then the next logical thing we do. It's a risk, but who else are you going to go to? You take Jesus at his word. And then you walk Father, there's a lot of us struggling with a lot of heavy stuff today. Maybe stuff that's visible, maybe stuff that's invisible to other people, but it is weighing us down. In this story, you're telling us to trust you, take you at your word. That's a huge risk. But we don't have any other options. We're out of options. So I pray, Lord, that you would honor our desperate faith when we run to you and that you would meet us and change us. Thank you so much for this story. Thank you for this the next sign that Jesus really is the word, the living word of God himself. So I just lift us all up to you and may you meet every seeking heart today in Jesus' name. Amen.